Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems President Dave Alexander on new products the company unveiled at the Air Warfare Symposium last week in Orlando. But first, joining me is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners for a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, thanks so very much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Vago. Uh, indeed, always great to have you aboard. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, including the Air Force Association's Air Warfare Symposium last week. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, Byron, thoughtful notes as, as usual. Uh, one of your top questions, uh, which, which you asked, uh, but uh, I think somewhat cheekily did not fully answer was uh, whether uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine uh, is going to mark an inflection point for defense spending. There is a sense that globally that's the case. The Germans have increased, obviously, defense spending by 100 billion euros in the immediate a commitment to uh, 2% uh, as uh, a floor, not a ceiling. And, and now there's talk, as we heard last week from Adam Smith, the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, that actually could be well north of $800 billion. Um, and there is an 813 figure, which aligns nicely with folks you talk to in the Pentagon about what it is that they think that they really need, sort of a $50 billion sustained investment above the level we're at now, to build up those capabilities to deter China, which is obviously looking um, at at this uh, crisis. Um, Let's start there. Is spending, are we at that inflection point? If not, why not? No, we're clearly at an inflection point. I think what I was trying to tease out is, are you kind of looking at a cyclical uh, increase in defense or the beginning of a secular long-term growth uh, trajectory for defense? And so, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> the market, you know, if you look at the way these stocks are trading, you know, some of the European names are up 80, 80%, 83% for Rheinmetall, 80% for Hensold since the start of the year. US Primes, you know, Lockheed's up 30%, Northrop Grumman up 23%, General Dynamics up 20%. So the market's, you know, obviously <clears throat> incorrectly discounting the fact that defense spending is going to move higher. I don't think we know exactly by how much um, and, and what exactly uh, the incremental dollars are gonna be spent upon. But you know, this is kind of a, it's an interesting question. And I think it really gets back to, um, you know, if, if, and that's why I don't have a, a conclusive answer to this because I don't really know if Putin <clears throat> wins in Ukraine, he's able to work, really kind of rework the Russian economy um, so that he's not completely cut off from, from technology or hard currency and that he can continue to sustain what's probably going to be in, at least initially a more moderate uh, defense modernization program to replace the equipment that he's lost in Ukraine. And <clears throat> you see the strategic alliance develop between China. I mean, I've called it either, you know, it could be the axis of pariah states or the, the axis of um, autocratic governments, there's probably a better handle to put on that, but that might be where you're looking at a, you know, a decadal increase in, in, uh, in global defense spending. Um, because I think regardless of what happens in Ukraine, 
you kind of have the conditions then set for, um, you know, well, what are the future threats going to be? You know, could, could Russia take a bite of other countries in Europe? You know, what happens <clears throat> in Asia? How does this affect China's calculus on Taiwan um, or other neighboring countries? And so that, that's just a question I'm posing, given the, the increase in stock prices you've seen. Now, the, the cyclical argument that, oh, this could be a two or three year pop might be that, you know, Russia doesn't achieve all its goals in Ukraine. Um, there's a negotiated settlement. Putin does not survive. Um, and either Russia falls into <clears throat> a period of chaos or um, his <clears throat> Putin is replaced by someone who wants to repair relations with the West. <clears throat> and so we're back down to, well, yeah, a lot of this money that was promised just isn't, isn't spent. Um, and again, I, there, there's no clear outline of this, I'm just trying to put scenarios out for people to start thinking about, um, you know, for companies, you know, what, what do you want to do for capital expenditures? For, you know, do you, do you really think if this is going to be a secular multi-year increase, there are a whole lot of things you want to be doing in your strategic planning cycle this year to prepare for that. Um, same, obviously, with DOD and European governments, you know, do you, what, what supply chain issues might you start really focusing on to allow that expansion in capacity and capability. What kind of R&D bets do you want to uh, double down on? Um, but if it's a cyclical thing, you know, then, then maybe these stocks you know, will, will have had their, their run and, and then we're back to the same concerns that existed in 2021 about you know, flattening defense spending. Um, you know, yeah, there are threats, uh, but, but maybe, maybe the backside of this Russian event is, is something very different from a, a global security standpoint. So it's a thought piece, that's all. And thought-provoking, right? I mean, the war in many respects, or in some respects, or at least some respects that we see, uh, is not going well uh, for Russia. Obviously, Ukraine using a lot of Western uh, capability, uh, assistance, uh, intelligence uh, to hold at bay and to target Russian forces. Um, there's a sense that there is more that we need uh, to do. Uh, how does this war play out? Byron. I mean, where are we? Because Putin has shown no inclination of stopping. Um, you know, he um, I, has created his own ecosystem. So even though the ruble may not be trading and there are all of these, I mean, right. I mean, he, he did, he, he didn't save, you know, save his uh, economy as much as he may have thought he did. Uh, but this is a test of wills, right? I mean, you're a historian, you, you know, we've seen this time and again, where somebody is willing to, uh, you know, absorb an enormous beating and still going. And his view is, you'll be back. You'll be back to buying my gas. You'll be back to, you know what I mean? We're in the early stages of this. I have not yet made things miserable for you, um, right? There, uh, there's a sense uh, the cyber war is at full tilt. Um, there is a sense that our, guy, our companies may be getting hit. Uh, we're trying to be quiet about how we go about doing all of this. Uh, on the other hand, there are other levers that, that he can still uh, play. Um, and to your point, you know, Barbara, you know there, there are plenty of leaders. You know, Saddam Hussein lost badly in 1990, 1991, and yet he remained in power. It was only finally until 2003 that he was, he was effectively removed. But this really gets back to this question about, you know, I mean, for a lot of, in a lot of ways, Iraqi military power was a wasting asset in the 1990s. We had a no-fly zone over Iraq. They really weren't able to import much. Um, 
you know, the, the morale in that military <clears throat> hardly uh, <laughs> soared as a result of what happened in 1990, 1991, but Saddam was still around. I, I think what I'm trying to drive at is, you know, where Russia becomes, where you get this secular growth story for defense. And uh, like I said, this is thinking, you know, this is a sustained, <clears throat> steady increase in global defense spending in Europe, Asia, and the United States, where the defense spending grows, you know, at or above the annual rate of GDP growth. And I think that's where you start talking about, that's where the super cycle comes into, into play. So it's not just that Putin survives, it's that, that Putin survives and that somehow <clears throat> he's able to remain um, on, a, on a rough trajectory where he is building a military that um, can incorporate a, a conventional military force that could project power beyond his borders. And I think if that happens, um, then, then you're really into this uh, secular growth story. You know, just because he survives this, um, you know, Kim has survived, uh, uh, Hussein, uh, Saddam Hussein survived, uh, Gaddafi survived up to a point. You know, but their militaries were really, okay, they had a nuclear weapons capability that kind of buys them deterrence, but it doesn't buy them the ability to go easily conquer uh, neighboring states or, or get engaged in other far-flung uh, activities that are at odds with Western values. And well, I should point out, right, I mean, Putin helped Bashar al-Assad uh, survive uh, through yeah. sheer brutality, right? I mean, the tactics that we saw, the, we're seeing the Russians use like target apartment buildings, uh, you know, uh, because that's where the casualties are, right? So he's yeah. using his precision to hit apartment blocks uh, and, and then drive refugee flows that he is occasionally shooting at uh, deliberately as well, yeah, right? And, um, but to answer your, I guess, your base question, I suspect, you know, we're going to see sustained major combat operations through April or May. Um, and then, it, you know, one thing I see very, very little commentary on is the state of the Ukrainian armed forces right now. I mean, we, we get the video of planes getting shot down, or, um, but, but there's really very little on social media or even public commentary about how, how many, what kind of aircraft armored losses have the Ukrainians suffered? You know, their morale seems to very, be very high. They've done very well in the initial days of this war. But, um, you know, if, if Russia is able to pin um, the bulk of their armed forces in eastern Ukraine, kind of, you know, not, not just cutting off Kiev, but kind of cleaving Ukraine in half, um, you know, the Ukrainian military could be in a pretty dire situation. And that, that's where I think you start thinking about, you know, is there a negotiated settlement out of this um, where both sides have to give? I mean, I, I think it, it's impossible right now for me to see Putin achieving all his goals in Ukraine, uh, just, just given, you know, the way they've handled this war in the first couple of days, um, the, the, the resistance the Ukrainians have shown. And, you know, the idea that they're now going to swiftly overrun the rest of Ukraine um, and march to the Polish, Romanian, Slovakian, and Hungarian borders, I think that's, that's <laughs> unlikely. Uh, many people would agree with you. But again, I mean, br brutality uh, has a way, uh, unfortunately, uh, of succeeding. Um, and those being brutal uh, tend not to factor whether or not they're ever brought to justice, right? I mean, the, the people around Putin are made members of a mafia, right? I mean, right. They, they all have dossiers, you know, that 
you know, Putin can use to prosecute them at home. Uh, they've killed, they've stolen, they've, you know, done all other manner of wrongdoing. And so they're captive and of that system, uh, ultimately, right? But it, it doesn't seem to be a check on their behavior, right? I mean, at the end of the day, nobody is thinking like, oh, my God, I'll be brought in front of a, a Nuremberg trial. Uh, at some point. Um, what are the secondary effects of this, right? I mean, one of the uh, fascinating elements of your note were the number of secondary effects here that we need to be looking at, whether sustained, you know, we, you know everybody has a tendency of focusing on energy prices. Um, you know, R- Russia uh, is a major fertilizer producer. It produces yeah. neon. It produ- you know, it produces a whole lot of things that we need from them, uh, as, as well as get from Ukraine uh, that is being interrupted at this point. Well, you know, the three things that I kind of picked on were um, Central Asia, uh, you know, because, and this this is just an interesting little sidebar, remittances um, for people from Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, all the other stands who work in Russia. And, you know, suddenly if you've, if you've effectively squashed the Russian economy, those remittances are not going to be coming back home. And they're fairly substantial for some of the GDPs of these countries. So, you know, is that another rock you drop in a pond here and you go, okay, you know, how does that affect these countries economically? You know, some like Kazakhstan are going to clearly benefit from higher energy prices, but, um, you know, will they also have uh, some some different economic uh, challenges to deal with? The second one uh, was higher food prices. Um, you know, you mentioned it's it's Ukraine as well too. I mean, there's going to be an interruption. We don't know by how much, but in Ukrainian <clears throat> exports of, of grains, um, that's particularly important for countries in the Middle East and Turkey. Um, and you know, food inflation historically has been a catalyst to uh, civil instability. That was one of the factors behind the. Um, the Arab Spring <clears throat> was a surging in uh, global food prices, and uh, even the Russian Revolution in 1917 had been preceded by by very harsh and rapid food inflation in Russia. So, and I suppose the third issue, it's an interesting one, Vago. I don't know really how to thread this needle, but how countries that <clears throat> have been relying on um, Russian, prior to that, Soviet uh, military equipment, you know, how is their security impacted? And then what do we do about that? And the, the ones that kind of jump out to me are Algeria, uh, India, Egypt, and Vietnam. And uh, you think, okay, you know, Vietnam, well, they're kind of important in our, <clears throat> in our competition with China, but they're also a pretty significant Russian arms buyer and, you know, are we willing to backstop them with what probably would be more expensive equipment? And in any event, equipment that would be, would take a year or two or more to kind of integrate with their military forces. Algeria, same, same problem, you know, it's, although that may be more of a, a European problem, but their, their military is almost entirely equipped with, uh, with Russian kit. Um, Egypt is more mixed. And India is more mixed too. But again, in the strategic competition with China, you know, how does cutting off Russian defense exports to those countries, how then in turn does that roll back into our security plans and policies? Because I don't think it's just as easily filled with, oh, well, that's, that's, those markets are going to be uh, taken over by U.S. contractors. Um, different styles, different, different support and sustainment issues, training, all these things are going to take time. 
I just want to take a moment for a word from our sponsors. GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage, and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All Domain Command and Control. Um, so, Byron, what are any right? I mean, China is a very adaptive adversary. Um, it it is uh, even more dependent than Russia. It doesn't have as much natural resources uh, to trade, right? I mean, the resource that it has is coal, which is uh, very dirty. Um, Obviously, that's why the country has been uh, focusing uh, on uh, solar and energy, wind, right? I mean, all the technologies for a green future for a whole bunch of reasons, in part because, you know, Chinese people are choked with pollution, um, ultimately, and they want to be energy independent. Uh, Hence, a focus, for example, on more nuclear uh, power uh, as well. What are some of the lessons here that the Chinese are drawing? Because it's got to be, you know, she is already trying to decouple his economy from the West, in part to insulate it from exactly this. How doable is that from a Chinese context? What are the lessons that you're learning from this conflict that uh, folks who are looking at China should be considering? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you see, you know, ex- one example that just happened, you know, when MasterCard and Visa cut off Russia, you know, if I'm China, like why, why would I <clears throat> rely on those payment systems? Uh, so I think it, it kind of accelerates this, you know, bifurcation of the world into Europe, the US and, and some of our Asian allies. And then another block <clears throat> that's going to be built around, uh, you know, it, it, kind of a Cold War setup where you really have two parallel economic systems. Um, and I think China, <clears throat> you know, seeing it how, it took what 30 years to really kind of integrate Russia into Western economies. And they are going to pay, they, not just Putin, obviously, but the Russian people are going to pay a a really harsh price for this. Um, They, they are somewhat insulated uh, because, you know, they're generally self-sufficient in food. Um, But, you know, the absence of any hard currency, I mean, these things about medicines and, and shortages of those in Russia, um, machine tool imports being cut off. They relied a lot on, on Europe for that. So I think China's got to look at this and turbocharge, you know, whatever efforts they had underway to decouple from the West, <clears throat> they're probably going to look at that much more aggressively. And that's going to have ramifications for Western countries as well, for Western companies as well. I've, I've often felt, you know, some of these, these models uh, where you combine commercial aerospace and defense they may not work that well. Uh, you know, why, why is China, they don't have choices over the, the short term, but over the medium or longer term, you know, are they really going to be buying commercial aerospace kit from U.S. companies that are also developing and building uh, defense equipment that's aimed at China? Um, so that's going to be an interesting thing. It, it'll take a five to 10 years to really fully play out, but I, I absolutely think that this change with Russia and Ukraine is, is going to accelerate whatever, whatever efforts China has had to, to really become more independent and decouple from the West. Uh, I, I think uh, that this gives uh, a, a powerful argument to people who all along have been arguing that you, you can't be doing this trade, right? And actually, at this point, it may be too late, right? I mean, you've educated Chinese uh, engineers, you've given them experience at Western firms, they've God, am I, I mean, I, I sound like a broken record on this for people who listen to the program. You know, there were no export certificates on a lot of that stuff. Sure. Uh, and now they're back home. They're building the C919 and, um, you know, are, are, it, it might not be, it isn't as good as an Airbus or a Boeing, but I don't really think that they particularly care. 
Um, right. I mean, ultimately, that's a price that they may be willing to bear in order, you know, even though those airplanes, right, are the airplane is almost entirely uh, of Western technology to make it work. Um, you know, I, I think the Chinese have managed to do well in every market that they focused to do well in. Right. So, I, you know, it's a question of how long we may be delaying them as opposed to. Uh, actually stopping them. Uh, let me uh, take you to the question of uh, the week ahead and what the audience should be paying attention to. What should the audience be paying attention to this week? Byron? I think the big the big issue will be the FY22 omnibus bill, which I assume will be delivered this week. Uh, and then the question probably will get another uh, continuing resolution, uh, <laughs> just given the amount of time there is left to, to get that done. Uh, and then there's some House Armed Services and Senate Armed Services hearings on uh, Indo-Pacific, uh, Strategic and Space Command. Uh, the French uh, Chief of Defense is speaking, uh, General Bukhar, at CNAS on March 8th. Um, and Army Chief of Staff General McConville speaks March 8th at CSIS. There are some intelligence briefings as well in Congress on kind of worldwide threats. Um, I also kind of keep an eye on what's coming out of the World Defense Show in Riyadh. Um, that started on the 6th and ends on the 9th. It is intriguing that Russian companies were still there exhibiting. Um, I'm not expecting any big announcements, you know, major Saudi orders, but just kind of, you know, what, what's kind of the tone and vibe from that uh, defense show? Because you know, Saudi Arabia is relatively new to um, to these sorts of things. There was an announcement about uh, Raytheon building Patriot missile parts in, in Saudi Arabia going forward. So, you know, how does this show kind of dovetail with their defense aspirations going forward? Uh, I, I think the Saudis will make sure that uh, they um, maintain their links both to the Chinese and the Russians, no matter what happens. And that's uh, certainly uh, a regional shift, uh, as, as we've seen over the past several years. Uh, Byron, always a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so very much for joining us and look forward to having you back on again next week. In the meantime, have a great week. Thanks a lot. You too, Vaga. Thank you. Last week, we were in Orlando for the Air Force Association's annual Air Warfare Symposium this year held in person to hear from senior Air Force leaders as well as industry executives. We met with General Atomics Aeronautical Systems President Dave Alexander to discuss the company's new products as well as the utility of the company's signature Predator Reaper line in future high-intensity conflict given some of the lessons learned uh, in uh, the war between Russia and Ukraine. Here's our conversation with Dave Alexander. Dave, thanks very much for uh, your time. Great to see you again. It was great seeing you in December at the rollout of the Mojave. Uh, and I want to get an update uh, on that. Obviously, the expeditionary variant uh, of uh, the Predator uh, series and, in, and, in the, and the Reaper, uh, and in fact, um, a platform that folks can retrofit uh, to that standard in, in the future. And maybe we can talk about that in a minute. We're here at the Air Warfare Symposium. It's just wrapping up as we catch up. You guys introduced two new programs here. Uh, give the audience a taste for uh, what's, what's new in the GASI Zoo? Well, what's new is, uh, is a combat aircraft called Gambit. And uh, so we're currently in design on that airplane and, and, uh, plan, and plan to uh, get that flying next year. So that's a brand new aircraft. It's a little bit different than what we normally do because we normally focus on uh, point design for long endurance. And this one is uh, designed for speed to keep up with combat aircraft. The other 
basic series airplanes, the Evolution series, which has our next-gen platforms in them, as well as some uh, very capable small UAS. So, in other words, the large UAS can carry the small UAS. The small UAS can have special capabilities and take it to, uh, you know, deep penetration into IADs or uh, do the difficult job that might be very risky to do that you wouldn't want to risk a larger platform. And, and one of those, for example, would be the Sparrowhawk, for example, that can deploy. Talk about Sparrowhawk because, I mean, I, I think it's absolutely brilliant how you guys deploy it and then pick it back up. Well, that's, uh, that's going to be uh, the holy grail when we do that. And uh, now you can take something that's more uh, costly with very good sensors on it and, uh, and uh, instead of having it a trit and losing lots of money, it can go in, it can do its mission and come back and be recovered and, uh, you know, has a life for another day. So it's very important on, uh, you know, what, what is attrition and what is attritable and what is attrition tolerant. So, you know, these are tough questions to answer, you know. Uh, I suggest everybody go to the GASI website and check out how Sparrowhawk works because you'll be fascinated uh, on, on uh, the mechanics of that. And we got briefed on that when we were visiting with, uh, with you guys. Uh, we were in El Mirage, uh, bringing the audience up to speed on Mojave and, and where you guys are. Uh, there is a recognition that more expeditionary capability, the likes of which you can get out of a Predator Reaper uh, platform, uh, is, is what w you know, will be increasingly important, whether for comms relay or strike, as we're seeing. I want to go to Russia, Ukraine in a minute. Um, Give us, give us kind of an update on where the program is and also your efforts to actually navalize it and be able to operate it off ship. Well, the, the key there is, is to be uh, runway independent with Mojave. So a dirt road uh, or a broken up runway, you know, we find a little piece of it and we can launch and recover off of it. So runway independence without, you know, the inefficiency of vertical takeoff and landing. So this way we can, um, you know, meet the requirements that are needed for long endurance and persistence and be runway independent at the same time. So that's a big game changer. Where we're going next is uh, taking the uh, aircraft to semi-improved runways and be testing that and making lots of dust. So that's what's coming next. Uh, but also for shipboard, right? I mean, you guys uh, can operate this aircraft. One of its attributes is to operate it off, say, a big deck amphib or, or, or an aircraft carrier. What's sort of the time frame you're looking yeah, at? The, the rotation speeds and the uh, landing speeds are so slow that really you can put this on a flat deck and uh, 20 knots headwind, and this airplane just takes off in a very short distance and, and inverse lands. Lands just like a conventional airplane. It, it, um, without a resting system or anything. So it's uh, pretty unique. 20 knots is all you need. Um, let me uh, take you uh, to the uh, ongoing uh, conflict. Obviously, uh, Ukrainian and Ukraine is in a, the fight of its life uh, against Russian forces. Uh, the Ukrainians have been leveraging an enormous amount of capability uh, to uh, take out uh, Russian armor. Obviously, javelins and NLAWs and uh, other uh, ground systems are important. But also, Ukraine uh, has a number of the Bayraktar. I would remind our audience that uh, General Atomics uh, Aeronautical Systems was founded three decades ago. The NAT was your signature product. You sold it to the Turks and it became the Bayraktar, yeah. which is really becoming uh, a focus product. There's a big debate about what, you know, that uh, the Predator Reaper was, uh, you know, it's a legacy of uh, counterinsurgency warfare and doesn't have a role. From your standpoint, what is this conflict? I know I'm asking a highly self-serving, this could not be a more softball question, Dave, <laughs> but we do have an inventory of these aircraft and it is showing real world operational utility in what would 
be the most contested ground environment we've got anywhere in the world right now. From your standpoint, what are the lessons to be drawn from this and how should they be shaping from your perspective how people think about the vast inventories of aircraft they already have yeah. in inventory? Well, I, I would just say, why put a pilot at harm's, in harm's way when you don't have to? And a lot of these uh, smaller unmanned aircraft that are quite lethal, carrying weapons, can fly very slow, they can fly low, and a lot of times these uh, radar systems are not really designed to catch something flying that slow. That could be ground clutter for them. So there's, there's ways around it. it, it's tactics, there's procedures that you can employ, and you might lose a few along the way, but there's nobody on board and you, you learn something and you move on. So I say don't, don't, uh, don't put a pilot in harm's way when you don't need to. Dave, thanks very much. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Best of luck and can't wait to see uh, Mojave uh, flying soon. Thanks, Bago, and same here. Good to see you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir, and thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.